Well, we're going to be in the book of Jonah tonight. Hopefully you're getting out your Bibles and finding that little book. It's only 48 verses, so it's not an extremely long book. Um, if you've studied the book of Jonah in your children's Bible class, you might be surprised by our study tonight uh, because there's a lot more to the book than the fact that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, which this looks like a whale. I know it's wasn't called a whale in the book of Jonah, um, but that that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish is an amazing thing, right? And it, it just kind of stands out in our mind as we study this book. This is what we know the book of Jonah for. Uh, but there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this book. Uh, so I'm looking forward to our study together as we go through this story and we talk about what it means to us. We've looked at much of the Old Testament now, uh, we're down to four prophets and uh, the book of First and Second Chronicles. Uh, so, so we're nearing the end of the Old Testament. And we've really gone through all of the Old Testament history except for Chronicles, which is a repeat of First Kings with some different information, a little bit. Uh, and, and we've gone through all of the prophets that were primarily focused on Israel. Uh, and we've seen, we've understood uh, a lot about God and a lot about Israel and a lot about um, his relationship and his plans for Israel and the promises that he's made toward Israel uh, in the future. And, and way back when we studied the restoration uh, that, that began with Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and we, and we learned about Esther. We learned about uh, what happens later on in the story. But the things that remain... Uh, are primarily prophets that discuss nations outside of Israel. And that's why I kind of put them off until this point. Uh, did you know that there are three prophets uh, that were sent to foreign nations to prophesy to them? And, and that's kind of interesting because these are prophets that God is sending from Israel to these nations. And why would God do that? Like, doesn't he only care about Israel? Well, actually, what we're going to see as we study these books is that God is, is concerned about the relationship that these foreign people have with his people, but also he's concerned about these foreign nations. He cares about everyone on the earth. He didn't just decide one day, okay, I'm going to just focus on Abraham and his descendants and the Jews and, and just forget about everybody else. He's still paying attention to all the foreign nations throughout the world. And as we study the book of Nineveh, this is very apparent in this book that he cares much about the Assyrians in Nineveh uh, because that is who Jonah was sent to. As you look at the very beginning of the book, you notice uh, that it starts out with a command from God to Jonah saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Apparently, Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria, has, has become so wicked and evil that cries have come out uh, to, to the God of Israel, of all places, against this place. And, and their, their evil is such that God now wants to send his prophet to the city to, to tell them about the evil that they have done. And, and what we see in this story is really interesting. Jonah decides, the prophet of God decides, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he just decides, I don't want to do what God has commanded me to do. So here we go. I'm going to try this new technology. Let's see how this works, right? Um, so here is where Jonah's from, Samaria. 
okay? Uh, the, the region of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And here is Nineveh, the city where he's commanded to go, Assyria. And, and this little bit on this map is all of Israel. So usually whenever you see images of Israel, it's blown up and it's this huge country. But this is kind of a backed out view. You've got the boot here of Israel. You've got Greece. And so here's, here's Samaria. Here's Nineveh. And Jonah decides... I'm going to get in a boat in Joppa, and I'm going to travel to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is all the way over here, okay? All the way over here. So he decides to go in the opposite direction of Nineveh, all the way over to Tarshish to get as far away from the presence of the Lord as he can. This is the other side of the world for the people living at that time. Uh, and so he boards a cargo ship, and he decides to set sail for Tarshish in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. And so as we look at this, we're going to see that Jonah has this rebellious heart against the Lord. He tries to hide from God uh, by running away from his presence. And God is, you think God's going to be pleased with that? Well, absolutely not. God knows where he is. Is there any way you can really escape from the presence of the Lord and try to get away from him and try to get away from his desires? And, and is there any way he's not going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish? Well, maybe Jonah thinks at the very least he'll send somebody else. And I can be freed from this obligation because of my trip to Tarshish. This will just uh, delay it to such a point where Nineveh will end up being destroyed in the meantime and, and it'll just happen. Well, Jonah boards this ship, and as he's uh, sailing along, he falls asleep, and, and there's a great storm, a great wind upon the sea, so much so that everybody who's in this ship starts getting terrified and calling out to their gods, and they start throwing the cargo overboard. Now, they're taking this cargo a long way, and this is a, 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 supposed to be a moneymaker for them. And it's a long trip, so they probably got a lot of cargo to make this journey just as provisions, and then they've got cargo that they're going to be trading. And now they're throwing it all out, and, and they go down to get the cargo, and the captain sees Jonah there in the, in the bottom of the ship, dead asleep. And he says, what are you doing? <laughs> Arise, we're about to die. Call out to your God. Perhaps uh, one of the gods that we're crying out to will save us. And Jonah gets up and apparently starts helping, but nothing helps. It just gets worse and worse. And so the people on the ship decide, well, well this, guy, this has to be somebody's fault. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cast lots. And that's like a version of uh, drawing straws, right? Whoever gets the short one is the one who is guilty. Or whoever gets the short one is the one who has to do something that's bad. Well, in this case, the lot fell on Jonah. And Jonah describes his rebellion against the Lord. And the people said, what are you doing? Why would you do that to us? And then they ask him, what should we do? And he says, throw me overboard. And this storm will be put out. And you would think, hey, these are, these are pagans, maybe these are uh, people who don't really care about the God of Israel, so sure, they're just going to, they're like pirates or maybe, they'll just throw him overboard. Well, they actually don't. They resist the message that comes from Jonah, that if you'll throw me overboard, then all of this will die down. And they basically say, surely that's not true. So they, they, they start breaking out their oars and they start trying to row to reach safe ground, and they resist the, the truth that Jonah has given them. Now, if you start rowing in a storm, 
that's dangerous. You could turn yourself in such a way that you might capsize, you could break off oars and be stranded. And, 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 and in addition to losing your sails, which might happen from this wind, and so you might be stranded or something like that might happen, but eventually it just gets so bad that they pull it all in and they decide, okay, we got to throw him overboard. And they decide to, to pick him up. They can't save themselves. They throw him overboard and they ask God before they do it, please don't hold this against us. Please don't let us perish for this man's life. Uh, and don't, don't lay on us innocent blood if this is not true and this man is, is lying to us. They're, they're afraid. And they're actually calling out to the God of Israel, asking him to, to not be harsh and judging them for doing this thing. And Jonah is thrown out, and as soon as he hits the water, the storm ceases. <laughs> and, and these men then turn to God and offer a sacrifice and make and, and, and make a sacrifice and offer a vow to, to the God of Israel. And then after that, we get to chapter 2, and we see that Jonah, as he's falling down into the depths of the sea, remembers that God is merciful, and he cries out to God to save him from his rebellion. And, and that's the instance where we see in verse 10, the Lord spoke to a fish, uh, and vomited, well, first of all, uh, the Lord brought a fish back in verse 17 of chapter 1 and swallowed up Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In chapter 2, he recounts his calling out to the Lord and how God has saved him. And then in verse 10, the fish spit him out and he ended up on dry ground. Well, after he's on dry ground, God comes to him again. And he says the exact same thing to, to him in verse 2 of chapter 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah listens to God. <laughs> He's learned his lesson. He's now going to this great city, and he goes to Nineveh. And this is a huge city, such a big city that if you were to walk it, it would take you three days to get from one end of the city to the other. It's an enormous city. And he just goes throughout the city, calling out to the people, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he just goes throughout the city, and that's all he says. He just repeats that idea. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, obviously, I mean, the people aren't going to listen to that, right? I mean, surely not. Here's an Israelite who's coming through half-heartedly prophesying that in 40 days this city is going to be overthrown. This is like the greatest city on the earth at the time. How in the world could this city, of all the cities of the earth, be overthrown in 40 days? I mean, we could see a siege happening and it taking multiple years, but how could they overthrow this city in 40 days? But do you believe that the people heard that message and they repented? They turned away from all of their sins. So much so that it says in verse 6, The king of Nineveh arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
This is like the greatest repentance that we really read about in the Old Testament of anybody. Like these people were so evil and so horrible. As you, as you study the Assyrians and you find out how, how atrocious their sins are against God and against God's people. How they took advantage of and how they tortured people that they, they dominated and they, they suppressed and oppressed all of the people that they conquered. And here they turn from their violence and they choose to pursue God. And what's amazing is verse 10 says God sees what they did, how they turned from their evil, and He relents from disaster that He said He would do to them. And He decided not to do it to Nineveh. God was forgiving to this pagan, evil nation, and He, he saved them through the, pe the preaching of Jonah. Now you might think, well, Jonah... Preaching in that city, you know, I would be terrified, you know. Surely they would just kill me if I were to go into that city as an Israelite and try to tell them that they're going to be overthrown. And this is like a totally opposite exp uh, uh, experience than what they were expecting. And so maybe at this point the story should be over and it's a happy ending and everybody goes home and everybody's good and, and, and the people were saved. Jonah did his job and wow, you know, a good prophet and everything went well for him and the people actually repented. But chapter 4 tells us that Jonah wasn't happy. Instead, it, it displeased him. It made him angry. So angry that he says to God, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is the whole reason why I went to Tarshish. I knew that they might repent and that you would be forgiving. Listen to what he says about God. I knew that you are gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. <laughs> He's so angry because God has done this. God has forgiven Nineveh that he wishes he were dead. And he says, this is the reason why I left. It wasn't because I was scared to go to Nineveh. It was because I wanted them to die. And now I have brought about their salvation. It's like he realizes his worst nightmare has come true. And the Lord says to him, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? That just kind of is a startling question. Like, Jonah is an Israelite. Nineveh is the enemy. Of course he does well to be angry. You want your enemy to be destroyed. This is, this is an oppressor. This is an evil city that has brought about great suffering. I mean, they are, they're ones who would slash open women's, pregnant women's belly, you know, and, and they bash children's head against walls, and they would, they would impale people. They were known for their impalement. They would stick people on sticks uh, as, as kind of a, a, a warning to all the nations about rebelling against Assyria, not paying them what is owed. They were just a harsh, evil city, uh, full of all kinds of, of horrible things. And Jonah wants them to go down so that Israel can rise up and be a great nation again. And so Jonah is upset about this. But God says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's heart hasn't changed. As you go through this story, you see him repent 
and change his, his, his mindset from disobeying and rebelling against God, realizing he can't do that anymore. He has to follow through on the commands of the Lord and do the things that God has told him to do. He has submitted his body to serving the Lord, but his heart remains unchanged. He's going to do it, but he's not going to like it. And this is the nature of this prophet. And so, you know, maybe we think, well, the story should end here. And now we see Jonah was unchanged and, and God obviously was okay with Nineveh changing. He wanted that to happen. And now you have a prophet that's against the Lord, but it goes on. And the rest of this story, we find that Jonah leaves the city after seeing the people appearing to repent. And he goes out to the east side of the city and he builds himself a little tent and he decides he's going to sit and wait it out. Forty days. Forty days and this city should be destroyed. Surely God's going to see past their fake repentance and, and go ahead and destroy them. And so I'm just going to sit here and watch and wait and see what happens. And while he's waiting, God has a plant start growing. You imagine 40 days, plenty of time. This plant starts growing up over him and becomes this nice shady tree for him to sit under and watch the city day and night. But God decides to appoint a worm for the plant. There's Jonah under his tree enjoying that shade. He's glad. He's happy. Maybe he's thinking, hey, maybe the city will be destroyed. Things are starting to look up here. God appoints a plant to attack, a worm to attack the plant, and he sends this harsh wind, scorching east wind, and he ends up uh, bringing about suffering on Jonah again whenever the plant dies. And he's sitting there in the broad sun and it's the heat of the day and he's suffering. And he actually says again to God, uh, it's better for me to die than to live. And God says in verse 9, uh, do you do well to be angry for the plant? <laughs> and Jonah says, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. We look at that and just say that's silly. Have you ever been that angry about something irrational? <laughs> yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Listen to what God says in verse 10. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. He says, should I not take pity on these people? You pity this plant. That, that brings you joy and, and that you, you enjoy so much that you didn't even do anything to create and to build. And should I not pity this people? And, and should it not sadden me and grieve me that this, these people would die who I have brought about, who I have nurtured and created over the course of hundreds of years? Should I not be upset about them and, and desire to save them? And Jonah just didn't understand that. He doesn't see that the work that God has put into this people and his desire is for repentance. He's not desiring that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. 
It does not please God to wipe out the wicked on the earth. He makes that point very clear in this story. But as we look at this story, I want to just ask ourselves the question, do we relate to Jonah? And hopefully we, we see uh, two very important points in this story that, that we can relate to and that we must overcome. First of all, Jonah fails to submit in his heart. He submits with his body, but he fails to submit in his heart. He fails to truly desire what God desires. You compare him to the sailors, or you compare him to Nineveh, and you see how Jonah is, is not really seeking after what God is seeking after. And these men who are foreigners seem to completely change their desires to line up with God's desires. And really in this story, Nineveh is not the enemy, but Jonah is. Jonah is the man who is against God, who is putting himself opposed to the will of God, even though he is the Lord's prophet. Now, why would Jonah do this? What is his, what is his internal motivations? I mean, it seems good, right? He loves Israel. He loves God's nation and wants God's glory to be seen in this nation. And, and he loves the comfort that would go, uh, that would happen in Israel, the peace, the prosperity, the rest that would happen if Nineveh would just fall. This would be the easy way for him to get everything that he wants. Israel would be great again. Life would go back to peacefulness and rest. But God's desires are the exact opposite. God doesn't necessarily want Israel to have peace and rest yet. Now's not the time for them to have that because of their continual sin and their rebellion against God. God's not focused on uh, trying to give his people the happiest life ever. That's not his whole desire. And really what would have been best in this situation would be if Nineveh had repented and had joined with Israel and had become followers of God and worshipers of God and submitted fully to the will of God. It doesn't happen. But that would have been the ideal outcome. Do we relate to this? How many of us look at our enemies and think it would be great if they would just die? <laughs> Or it would be great if I just never had to deal with them again. Like, that would be the best possible thing for my life. Do we see how really the best possible thing for my life is for them to change? For them to turn it all around and to believe in God and to put their trust in God and to make things right. That is the best possible thing outcome for all those people around us who are lost in darkness, no matter how big of an enemy it is. But we struggle so much with forgiving and giving a second chance to anybody who has wronged us repeatedly and done great evil against us and harmed us or harmed our families. We struggle so much with that. We just, we don't know how to be forgiving toward people. We don't know how to let things go. And, and I understand. Because Jesus does say, don't throw your uh, what's holy to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. That there are rebellious people that, that they just, they're not going to change. 
they, they just got this hardened heart. But do we want them to change? Do we want them to overcome the, the hardness of heart that's inside of them? And do we want them to become what God wants them to be? This desire was missing in Jonah, but it was there in God. God wanted that. God desired that. Now, he's realistic. He understands. He knows that there's stubborn, rebellious Pharisees and Sadducees. We've been seeing that all throughout Matthew, who just will not listen and will not do the things that, that God wants them to do. And he, he wants us to be careful and he doesn't, he, he's not saying go uh, hand a pearl to a pig and let it bite your arm off. Like he says, they're going to turn and attack you. Don't give them what's valuable. But at the same time, there's this desire to love them even though they have been evil towards you. And what we see is that if you're going to submit to God, then that means that you have to be willing to give up this perfect picture of life like Jonah had in his mind that Nineveh would, would be destroyed and be no more, and that Israel would become great and become what, uh, you know, this, this wonderful beacon of hope for all the world, but they would be the ones who succeeded and life would get peaceful again and everything would be wonderful. Like, that was his perfect picture of life. And submission to God meant giving that up and just letting God do what he does, whatever that means. And that might mean something totally different. But trusting that what God has in store is good. I don't see it. <laughs> and this world tells me that the best thing that can happen is to take vengeance and to avenge and to, to, to have horrible things happen to our enemies. But what we see is God can work things in a way that we've never understood before. And he wants to do that. But God's own prophet doesn't see it. So whatever the ideal picture of life is, maybe it's removing all these evil people and, and then living a peaceful life without strife and dealing with their spiritual immaturity and, and all those kinds of things and having this perfect little church where there's perfect people and you know we don't have any messes or anybody who sins or anything that ever goes wrong. Maybe that's kind of the picture that's in our mind. We need to understand that God's picture is different because he wants us to show love toward people who are horrible. Nineveh was horrible. He wants to show compassion toward those people. And that's, that's the kind of God that he is. And he shows himself to be in this book. And that's the kind of people that he wants. He wants Jonah to become like him. He wants him to be transformed. And as you look at this book, really it's just sad. It's discouraging. Because what you see is Jonah ends up being saved and then Nineveh be, is saved and the sailors are saved and everybody's being saved and Jonah's not happy about it. Like there's every reason to rejoice in the book, but he just doesn't get it and he doesn't see that he himself has received grace and so now he should have a desire for this person to receive grace for these people to receive what he himself has received. When we compare Jonah's feelings with God's feelings, we see that maybe there's some work to be done in our hearts. As we have received grace from God, we need to understand God wants to share that same grace with the worst people around us. 
I mean, here we have murderers. We probably have rapists. We have, we have the worst of mankind in Nineveh. And God is saying, I'm going to let them keep going. And I would love for them to change and to serve me and to worship me. And we're just like, no, no way, God. No, they can't. They can't be allowed inside. They're, they're too evil. They're too bad. And God says, I would save them if they would let me. God expects Jonah to be trained by the grace he's received. He is stubborn, obstinate, rebellious, defiant, going completely against the will of God to do whatever he wants to do, and yet God doesn't destroy him. That's what we would expect. Okay, Jonah's done horrible. Throw him off the ship. He's sinking. He's crying out for God. Guess what? Too late, Jonah. Sorry, bud. Bye. And, and oh, oh, here's a new prophet. Let's send him up to Nineveh. You know, that's what we would expect. And we don't have that mercy and compassion. But Jonah received that mercy and compassion, and we would expect him then to, to understand that as he has been forgiven, so these people should be forgiven. He knows God and he rebelled against him. These people don't know their right hand from their left. They're completely ignorant of God. And he wants them to know him. And he expects Jonah to, to see that and to have compassion. So do we relate with Jonah? What stops us from being transformed? from being changed in the way that we, we see other people. If, if you're here this evening and you've received grace, grace that is unparalleled to anything you've ever experienced from God, and you know your sins and you know your unworthiness of His forgiveness, then what is keeping us from giving grace to those around us? Is it some perfect picture that we have in our minds of, of a life that we want to live and, and a way that we want to be and that's going to mess that up and that's going to make life harder and it would be so much better if I could just ignore those people and throw them out of my life? Well, God expects us to be transformed and trained by His grace. And He actually says that in Titus chapter 2. He actually tells us that we're supposed to have the grace of God training us to become more righteous. And, and it's not the grace of God given to us because we are good and we are righteous. It's completely undeserved grace. And it's supposed to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's supposed to train us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives as we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of God who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are zealous to, to do the works of God, to go out into the world and shine as a light for God's glory, extending the grace that we have received to those around us. We are to love as He has loved us. This is the same message that Jesus gives us, that He expects us to submit our hearts to Him, not just our bodies, not just to go through the motions of the things that he's commanded us to do, but that we would change our hearts to line up with his heart. If he truly desires the most fallen person to be forgiven and to repent and turn from their sins, then our hearts must submit to that will and truly desire those things as well. They must be transformed from this mindset that wants what's best for me and become the people that want what's 
in God's heart and God's mind. They want others to experience the grace and the forgiveness that we've received. And we have to come to the point where we understand that we don't do well to be angry toward other people. I deal with anger as much as anybody. I struggle with it as much as anybody in a lot of different ways. But the truth is, as he repeats twice in this text, we don't do well to be angry after the grace that we've received. James would say the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And we very clearly see that illustrated in the life of Jonah. Jonah did not do well to be angry with those who were evil toward him. He would have done much better to be rejoicing with God at the repentance and the change that has taken place. You know, sometimes the, the idea goes around us in society and, and in our own minds that, oh, that person will never change. And as we see this stubborn rebellion in them, <laughs> we might realize that they're like Jonah, that they need something dramatic to happen to them to turn their hearts. And even then, they might just submit their bodies and not their hearts. And we understand that, but, I mean, Nineveh, who would have thought that that city would ever change? So we see in this story that, yeah, people do change. And that we, we need to understand and be gracious toward those, even if they seem defiant and rebellious and evil, and give them a chance at least. And maybe after they show a stubborn, rebellious heart that refuses, we, we step back and we don't you know, continue down that path, understanding that that's dangerous for us, but maybe we, we hope that something will happen. Maybe we've, we've put a, a stone in their shoe. Maybe we've, we've done something to kind of uh, to irk them a little bit and maybe get them curious, and we're hoping for that, even with the worst of the worst, that they would become obedient and that they would submit their lives to God. I've seen tremendous change in lives of people in my own mind, and so I know it's possible. And I think we need to believe in that and trust that God is working with us to bring about a transformation in the lives of those around us. What's interesting as you read this book is, like Jonah, Jesus was sacrificed. <laughs> and he was buried for three days and three nights. We've been reading about that in Matthew. We see that pop up twice in Matthew. That he uses this example of Jonah to say that this is the sign you're going to get. That I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Like Jonah was tossed into the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So there's this similarity of Jonah and Jesus in the story that's really interesting whenever you understand the story. Because Jonah is the most opposite of Jesus <laughs> that we see in scripture like he shows no compassion or mercy, and Jesus has complete compassion and mercy toward the tax collectors and the sinners of this world. Jesus comes in and commands his people to have compassion after receiving compassion. He commands his disciples to love others as I have loved you. That command is the command that Jonah is trying to get across to us. 
God has loved us. His love has been poured into our hearts. And it's transformed who we are. So that we have hope for the hopeless. We have compassion on those who are the worst of the worst. And we believe that God can work in them to create a change because he's made a change in me. A phrase that sticks out to me is back in the book of Jonah. Let's go back to Jonah and look at chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. This is what Jonah says as he's in the, the, the belly of the fish. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now this picture of salvation belongs to the Lord is that Jonah understands it's not up to me who's saved and who's not. Now at the end he's upset about it, but he understands that salvation belongs to God. It's not up to us. So we can't think about it that way. We have to spread the seed everywhere and just let God do his work. And if somebody shows interest, realize God is working. It's his work to save. And he is willing to save everybody who will come to him in humble submission. If you're here tonight and you have not received that salvation, that grace that has been offered, uh, if you need God's forgiveness and God's mercy, and there's anything that we can do to help you and encourage you and pray for you, uh, we want to do that. We want to, to help those who are lost, who are seeking uh, the Lord's help and the Lord's compassion, because we've received it too. No, nobody here is perfect. Nobody here is, is worthy of the salvation that we've received. But we serve a God who forgives and who loves and if you're here and you're willing to submit your life to him, your heart to him, and be transformed by the grace that he's given to you, then will you please come? And will you, will you stand as we sing and invite?